Welcome to the December 2017 issue of the Senses of Cinema podcast. I'm one of the editors at the journal, Mark Freeman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, writer, academic and film programmer, Eloise Ross. Hey, Mark. And in our rotating third chair this month is Liz Burke. So, Liz, can you tell us what you do in the world of screen culture? I sure can, Mark. And hi, Eloise. I'm a producer, mainly documentary, but not just, filmmaker, and I'm doing a PhD as well about interactive documentary. Interactive documentary? Interactive documentary. Sounds very intriguing. I yeah, think we might ask have to talk me about... and I can't answer that question. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> when I finish the PhD, ask me. We're going to grill you about that okay, later cool. on. Um, so on today's show, we're going to be looking at Greta Gerwig's directorial debut, Lady Bird, in which Saoirse Ronan plays a girl transitioning from life as a confused teenager to life as a slightly less confused young woman. Then we're going to turn to our third chair, the wonderful Liz Burke, and discuss her film Defiant Lives, which is an incredible documentary on disability activism across the US, the UK and Australia. And then finally, to round out the year and say farewell to 2017, we're going to be talking through our kind of profit loss statement for this year, who has left us with an incredible film legacy and who's emerged as an exciting new addition to the film world. And in our bonus segment for our patrons this month, Eloise and I will be talking to Liz Burke about her career, her confusing PhD, and how she's navigated her way through a relatively fragile film film industry within Australia. Greta Gerwig started her career as an actor and then began co-writing scripts, most notably on Noah Baumbach's Francis Ha, and now she steps into the director's chair with Lady Bird, a film that she's also scripted. It is the story of Lady Bird, played by Saoirse Ronan, who, completing her final year of school, is grappling with her university prospects, as well as her friends, boys, and her blunt, irritating, loving mother, played by Laurie Metcalf. So, Eloise, does this film suggest to you that Greta Gerwig perhaps belongs as much behind the camera as she does in front of it? Yeah, it really does. I was stunned by this film. It's really beautiful um, and I love what Greta Gerwig is trying to do. She clearly has a lot of talent um, to back up what she wants to do, which is to increase kind of the um, screen presence of women, women's stories, the literature of how women relate to the screen and are also presented on it, which is really beautiful. I read somewhere, I think, um, that she wanted to kind of present something of a female counterpart to films like Truffaut's 400 Blows um, and Richard Linklater's Boyhood. Um, I haven't seen Boyhood, but I do know that it is kind of held up as this story of of youth and boyhood, I suppose. So anyway, I think she has really done very well. I mean, it's been so well received, but uh, I think completely justified um, because she writes very naturally. The performances are beautiful. There's no... There's no cruelty in this film, even though it's a very difficult, there's a lot going on. There's difficult relationships, difficult processes, difficult kind of um, realizations as this young woman, um, Lady Bird, is growing up. But there's no cruelty in the film. And I just think that that's such an achievement to depict these kind of difficult experiences, but just in a really beautiful way. Yeah. Liz, how did you find yeah, it? Yeah, I thought, yeah, I agree, Eloise. I thought it was beautifully cast mm. for a start, which is, you know, probably so 90% of the film, some people say. And just those, I mean, people talk a lot about the crucial relationship between Lady Bird and her mother, which is very interesting because at times I think, oh, my God, are they pushing this relationship too far into the negative? But she didn't manage to 
pull it back. And I think you're completely right in saying there's no cruelty. Mm. But I also thought the relationship with her father was really intriguing. And that idea of a strength of a relationship between a daughter and a father and that gentleness behind him and just this quiet humour of Tracy Lett's performance all the way through, I think, was just gorgeous. And And I think that was the thing that jumped out at me, like what you're saying, that that relationship between Lady Bird and her mother is so difficult and complex. And the reason that I think that does work is that it's kind of balanced out with the way that Lady Bird responds to her father. So she get this kind of intense, fractious kind of relationship with with Marion, with the Laurie Metcalf character. And yet you can segue from a sequence with her battling with her mother over something inane and ridiculous and then move directly into something that is incredibly sweet and incredibly lovely. There's that terrific uh, sequence where they're shopping for a dress where they are battling like crazy over every single word that that each other utters and then immediately Gerwig sort of flips that around and has them completely united, which is... I think that's a really difficult balancing act to try and get that the argumentative nature of what it is to have a relationship with a parent, but then also to counterbalance that with you know great love and understanding. I love that scene, and I wanted to bring it up because Laurie Metcalf is so brilliant um, and is such an accomplished actress. Yeah. So that you know everything she does on screen is is impeccable, um, but it's also in Gerwig's writing. I think that you can see that the relationship between mother and daughter is is really quite deeply explored in this film, even in a number of like fairly short sequences. Like a lot of the, the editing is, is very efficient and scenes are depicted, um, often, um, you know, they're, they're quite short, but the emotion that comes from them is, is very deep. But that scene, there's this particular moment where they're kind of fighting over a dress and then, um, Ladybird comes out of the dressing room and says, I love this dress. I love it. I want it. And the mother says, isn't it too pink? Because she thinks she's, she thinks that they're still in this like kind of fake jarring, you know, um, sparring moment back and forth. And it was just the wrong thing to say. Um, and you can see that in her face that she's like, oh my God, I am struggling through this relationship with my daughter. And that both of them say the wrong thing. And both of them are, you know, very heated in their relationship and in their conversation. But but both of them are, are sad that they can't express themselves properly. Yeah. And I think yeah. that that was just beautiful. And that, that look on Laurie Metcalf's face after that moment um, is so powerful. But it does go back and forth. And so you have them like, I can't believe that they're both, both behaving like that. But then, you know, there is also a warmth. But that's set up from the very first scene, isn't it, in the car when they're bonding over um, the grapes of wrath. (laughs) And I just love that period thing of these huge cassettes and then they're bonding and crying and then again it turns in a moment from that bonding to this argument which is just ended in the most spectacular way. So that sets up the whole film. It really does. It really does the script and the editing. It jumps into it so quickly. And and I think that Gerwig's really clever to to draw that parallel between these two women that they fight like crazy and are essentially the same so that they're they're constantly battling with each other you know that idea of them having a conversation where they can be 100% on the same page you know can almost predict what each other's going to say and then with one word and one phrase they're both going to turn on each other because they're both so incredibly similar and she does that I think even the, the the first shot is the first shot not um a kind of echo of uh 
both of the women in profile. And my memory is that there's a, a kind of sense of them being you know, kind of mirrored. In that the cut. Possibly. Yeah. A little bit yeah. later, there is, there's a cut and, directly and from Laurie yeah. in the yeah. driver's seat to yeah. um, the Lady Bird well. in the they driver's seat. They do those match yeah. cuts yeah. of the two exactly. women in profile. Yeah. yeah. I also wanted to touch on, because we talk a lot about the mother and daughter and that is beautiful, but yeah. what makes this film so so great, I think, and such a wonderful accomplishment is is that every single character in the film, no matter how briefly they appear, is fully realised, yeah. I think. Um, and everyone has, if not a little bit of backstory, they at least get a little bit of time to kind of um, express themselves. Yeah. We even see with um, Father um, Levach that he kind of goes through this process of really um, a difficult kind of, period, um, career failure, life, um, being upset with his own life. We're not exactly sure, but he gets to kind of experience that on screen. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, the, the person who is Lady Bird's first boyfriend, he sort of drifts off and it could be a a joke, you know, what happens to him, but it's not, it's given a real weight. And that's something that's so beautiful, you know, that every character I think adds Mm -hmm. something to this and it's not, there's no punchline here. There's... Yeah, no cruelty in it at all. No, at all. even the potentially mean girl, her second yes. girlfriend, yeah. isn't really a mean girl. She's just a person like yeah. anyone else. Yeah. Like, she actually doesn't do anything wrong. No. Oh. She has certainly, I think, expectations of what her life is. But, yeah. you know, there, there is a sequence where a, a certain truth about Lady Bird is revealed and you sort of expect that it's going to be, you know, the big Heather's moment. Mm. And it's not, really. No. You know, there, there is a kind of level of acceptance, a little bit of kind of confusion as to, like, why are you lying about these, these certain things about your life? But there's no real judgment about her, no, which I, I was surprised yeah. by. I was waiting for the, you know, your more traditional sort of Heather's response, yeah. like, you know, you're, you know, you're poor, I'm wealthy, you're a loser. Yeah, the big but that payoff. Yeah, yeah, and that doesn't come. Which I yeah, think and is I wonderful. guess, you know, people don't often respond in those really extreme ways. Yeah. And so that's why this is kind of nice to just see. It's like, oh, and then move on. Yeah. But the film's also, I think, working around these ideas of how we conceive of ourselves. And, and obviously, the, the central trajectory of the film is about Ladybird trying to make sense of who she is. But also, you know, the. The mother, Laurie Metcalf, trying to figure out what she is as a mother. You know, the father losing his job and then having to redefine himself in some way. Um, you know, one of my favourites was her best friend, Julie, um, who is just, she's so brilliant. And she's got this whole idea of, of who she wants to be, her desperate desire to change her name, to not be, you know, Julie, to be something else, to be something cooler. Um, and even as Ladybird steps through, you know, various boyfriends, that each of those uh, boys are also kind of constructing something about themselves. Um, you know, uh, Timothy Chalamet, who is uh, also in Call Me By Your Name, plays one of those boyfriends, thought he was completely hilarious with this completely fake, you know, cool idea that he constructs of himself as, you know, a teenage boy. Um, and he's he's such a joke. And... and you know, I suppose in some ways I sort of identify with that idea of, you know, I'm a dude, I have to kind of project a certain image. And, and that was so perfect, what it is to be a teenage boy, in the same way that I think Gerwig really captures what it is to be a teenage girl. Yeah. And, um, you know, that scene uh, where she, 
you know, with Tim- Timothy Chalamet yeah. and, you know, that great line. And I'm not giving it away because it's in the trailer of, you'll have lots of not special sex. Yes. I mean, it's a great yes. lie yeah. because it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that's that speaks to her real specificity as a writer. I love the way that she writes. Um, she's just got a good rhythm for language yeah. and I think she's got a good ear for the way that people speak. Totally. I love when... um. Lady Bird and Julie are talking in high school and Lady Bird says, I want to go to New York. And, and Julie says, what about terrorism? And the response is, don't be a Republican. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's not even yeah. given any time really to breathe that joke. Yeah. It just yeah. happens. It's, yeah. it's very, very good, very natural. I did read an interview with uh, Gerwig where she said she wrote this script and she said, well, I could have given it to Noah Baumbach to direct because they're partners. But she said, no. And he would have done a great job at it. But no, this one's for me. I'm going to do this one. And it's really interesting, I think, when you look at her career trajectory. I mean, she has co-directed a feature and she's written features. But one thing I also note when she talks about her career is that when she was starting out doing so-called mumblecore, she was just doing lots of on-set work. Just on different films, doing different tasks. And I think that's coming from a really interesting background as well. Yeah, there's that sense that she's kind of been training for a really varied career throughout throughout those years. That You know, she's done some writing, then she co-directs one of those very early Mumblecore films, I think with Joe Swanberg. And then, you know, really breaks as an actor, and she's, you know, an incredible actor, but now there's that sense of, well, I've kind of rounded out my career. I've mm. sort of dabbled in all of these yeah. arenas. And now I'm going to start focusing on the things that are really meaningful to her. And I think that comes through in the film. Yeah, it's not like she just all of a sudden thought, I want a career change. It's something that she's been developing yeah. for, you know, the entire time she's been in the industry. Though I will say that probably blokes just say, I'm going to be a director. Whereas she right. has been training for years. Yeah. It's like, now I'm ready to direct something. Yeah. You know, and now she's I can put in do the time. It. You know, yeah. she's put in the time and the effort. The other thing that I, I really appreciated about that film, and this again stems from Gerwig herself, is that there's a really, really strong sense of place. And I absolutely love that sense of this is, we're in Sacramento and we're really going to understand this is a, a geographical location mm. for all of its beauty and its kind of ugliness. Um, that there's a really specific understanding of what that area is like. And, you know, as Obviously, we're not in America, and when we consume American product, there is a really strong sense of we understand New York, we understand L.A., but there are other pockets of that nation that we've got no clue about, and the specificity of that film made me feel like, you know, I've got a new map in my head. Yeah, like, it made me want to visit Sacramento. It, it really did. And it's not always, like, beautiful. <laughs> and, and it's but, not, like, at the top of my list. <laughs> no, but, but you get that strong sense of that's such an interesting place to yeah. be. Um, the I just want to mention as well the the look of the film. Oh. It looked beautiful. It was filmed on a. I actually looked this up because it kind of looks a little bit grainy and and very beautiful, as though it was filmed on sixteen millimeter. I was reminded of of Todd Haynes' Carol, which was on sixteen millimeter, but it was filmed with a digital camera and Ari Alexa. I don't know anything about this. I'm just mentioning the the name. Um, but filmed by cinematographer Sam Levy, who'd done a lot of Noah Baumbach's films as well. Mm. Um, and also Wendy and Lucy, Kelly right. Reichardt's film, which is right. which they have a similar sense of place and a sense of, yeah. you know, sort of self-discovery. Yeah. Um, um, and just as a fun fact, he also photographed some green porno episodes. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, but it was, it was really beautiful and it, and it 
um, you know, we're talking about Sacramento and the film's sense of place. And the cinematography is so key to that yeah. um, because it is in the script and it is in the relationships that the characters have mm. to their home. Um, but it's also, you know, sort of in there. It has to be in that unspoken, that visual type of sense. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned it's, it's on an Alexa because I didn't know that because it is quite grainy and kind of Alexas are usually noticed for being ultra sharp and right. ultra bright. So there must have been quite a bit of work in post to sort of dirty it up okay. a little bit. Okay, sure. Yeah. Hmm. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, just something that she she wanted to go for, I suppose. Yeah. That like hominess, maybe a little something like home movies kind yeah. of sense. Yeah, yeah. I don't know because yeah. there was that kind of, you know. I mean, it's it's a set fifteen years ago, so it is a period film. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. But I think we can all agree that that we're pretty happy with Lady Bird. I mean, I think it's a. Yeah, I know and people a, are talking about it as a big Oscar chance yeah, too. Yeah. It seems like a boring consensus to just love it, given I know. that, you know. That, I mean, is there anything that anyone well, didn't well, like? No, I, I, I would say that the one thing, not that I didn't like it because I really loved it, I didn't think it was surprising in any way. I thought that it was really totally on the money, but it's not doing anything outside of its own lane in some ways. And you mentioned earlier, you know, films like Boyhood or, you know, um, any of those kind of growing up being a teenager mm. films. And some are good and some are bad. And this is one of the good ones. Yeah. I don't think it's finding anything new or exciting to say. I just think that what it's saying is, you know, it's saying it really, really eloquently. So I guess we can all agree. Yeah, thumbs this up. Is, this is, this is yep. a winner and that people should try Hopefully and check it out. a yep. special sign of what's to come. Absolutely. Um, so she sort of announced herself as, as being on that directorial stage as yep. well. I, I believe the the film is already uh, released in the states. I think it comes out in other territories in the coming months. So look out for it. A documentary combining archival footage and interviews with some key activists and leaders, Defiant Lives traces the disability rights movement as it took place across Australia, the USA, and Britain. Made by Australian filmmaker Sarah Barton and powerfully edited by Rob Murphy. This film has a timely urgency that matches the era in which it has emerged. Archival researcher and co-producer on the project, Liz Burke, joins us to chat about the film and her experiences today. This Sunday, just past December the 3rd, 2017, was International Day for the Disabled. Um, so it makes sense that we're talking about it right now um, and it's going to have some timely screenings, we hope, in the next little while. Um, but Liz, I'm just interested, why um, did you and Sarah decide to make this film about the movement across multiple continents and countries rather than just in one specific location? Right, that's a good question. I guess how it starts off, it's Sarah Barton, who's the director and co-producer, started making this film, it would be nine years ago at this stage, and I think, I don't know that she started off with an ambition to make it so large in scope. I think that comes out of the context of doing her research. And it's interesting and how docos get made, they're all different and they're all the dog's breakfast, was that she actually received a Churchill Fellowship to go overseas and do research about the issue uh, with various disability activists who you see in the film. And she decided, well, I'll take a camera and I'll film them because I'll never possibly get to do this again. Um, and so I think she spent four to six weeks in the USA and UK as one person 
band with her camera and gear dragging around, shooting quite a few of the interviews who you see. So it was something that grew, um, and I became involved in it about three years ago, uh, where the film was fairly well progressed, but it's something that just grew in scope and time as we learnt more. And Sarah's background is that she has always done a lot of work around disability activism. She directed a documentary in about 94 called Untold Desires about our disability and sexuality, which was on SBS and it won SBS's first Logie and an wow. AFI award. Um, and then she's, she's done lots of different things and she produced a series for community TV called No Limits for Years. So that's always been central to her and I've known Sarah, we've been good friends sit for over 20 years now, I think. So she asked me to become involved a few years ago, I guess when the film became a little bit stuck and she needed someone else on board who had the capacity to get the money to finish it, basically. Yeah. It's an extraordinary documentary. Like I, I really enjoyed it very, very much. And I think that one of the things that I really took away from it was early on, I mean, the film sets up this idea of positioning disability activism within other kind of activist uh, processes and movements like the civil rights movement or the feminist movement or the queer movement or something like that. And I feel like we've all got a an idea of the key players and the key moments in each of those movements, but I really was unaware of the, the activism that had taken yeah. place within that particular context. It's a really hidden history, I think. So I had very little idea when I first became involved. So a lot of my involvement was listening and keeping my mouth closed and learning because all of this was very new to me as well. And you're quite right. We do position it amongst different sorts of activisms. And one of the things we were really working against is that often when disability is spoken about in the media, it's even spoken about as people that you pity or people who inspire you. And yeah. both of them are hateful positions. Yeah. You know, people often think when they talk about, you know, someone with a disability, they're so inspirational. And if you talk to people with disabilities, they hate that because yeah. it's like, dude, I'm just living my life. I'm yeah. just getting out of bed in yeah. the morning. That That's comes all across I'm doing. so strongly really in does. the in the documentary, yeah. um, and that it positions that kind of approach. You know, it begins saying, you know, with all of this damning kind of stuff about the telethons oh, that, was that incredible. were yeah across all three countries that were yeah. kind of really rejected and that that was the beginning yeah. of, of the kind of... Yeah, the, the role of Jerry Lewis in, yeah, in that sorry, whole... Jerry Lewis yeah, sorry, Jerry Lewis fans. He doesn't come out looking that great, does he? No, but, he, but, is, he is a disliked person within yeah. the disability sector. I was aware of that, um, mm. but it was it was fascinating to see mm. that, that all happen and just yeah. to hear from the, the people who were actually behind it at the yeah. time. And I think what reinforces that, you know, you start out with that, the issues of, of the telethon and, and you know, the kind of pity attitude. Yeah. The, the way that the film is structured, I think, lent itself perfectly to sort of setting up, here's traditionally, you know, this, what is it? It's the medical model, I think, yes, that, that is right. proposed. Yes, the medical model, which is about institutionalisation. Yeah, which is fascinating. Yeah. That, and almost using those that sequence of events surrounding the telethons as the almost the instigating incident. Like, this yeah. is the point when, you know, disability activism is born. It's, yeah. it's a really crucial yes. moment in, yeah. in that movement. Yeah, and of course that moves to the social model, right. which the idea of this is that disability is about the barriers that people face, not their actual physical 
physical issues, their yeah. physical impairments. They're not disabilities in themselves. Yeah, yeah what's a problem is that society um, is not set up to, yeah. to provide access for yeah. these people. And that's so simple yeah. but so powerful it's that it comes hard, across in It's that a hard film. idea for people to get their heads around and something that which we also want to talk about, which I like, is because it's set in Australia, UK and USA, how that all played out within different political contexts. Mm. Yeah. Can, can, can you speak a little bit about that? Because I was really fascinated by the, there's a sequence where various interviewees start talking about the different modes of activism yeah. that exist within each nation. Yeah. So you've got a US activist saying, well, the, the American history of individual rights, individual freedoms works really well. Because if you put up your hand and say, I have the right to go into this room to access this, it's like the legislation says, oh, yeah, you do actually. Whereas in the UK, that comes from a history, of, you know, within the national health system of community-based stuff. So that works quite well. In Australia, we're a little bit stuffed because we do have um, legislation about access, but uh, it doesn't work very well because if someone with a disability wants to say, I can't get into this building, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, they actually have to fill out a lot of forms and argue yeah. for it, and it's just a shit fight. Yeah. So um, often what happens is that people use social media to shame uh, organisation. Stella Young, who died a yeah. few years ago, was infamous for that. She just put up photos of, for instance, a bar she went into, and the, dis- the disabled toilet would be full of stock, full of cardboard mm. boxes. Yeah. So she would name and shame them, yeah. rather than going through a long useless process. Yeah. I mean, that, that the difference between those kind of almost national identities of yeah. how we go about affecting change yeah. was so fascinating. Yeah. I, I can't remember who it was. I don't know whether it was Stella, but uh, somebody said something along the lines of the Australian mode is like, we believe in the fair go, but yeah. the concept of the fair go is not really necessarily, it, it, it's a great image. It's a great yeah. kind of thought, but not necessarily carried through. It doesn't work that well at times. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, where the legislation also suggests that anything that makes the fair go a little bit difficult, mm. you know, yeah, is, yeah. is too hard. Yeah, yeah because that's yeah. called, uh, you know, if it's considered unreasonable for someone to have to make changes, then they don't have to. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that I, I really appreciated about that documentary was getting to understand some of the really key figures yeah. in, in that history and, yeah. and people that I – some of the Australian ones I'd certainly heard of, Stella, obviously, yep. um, but Rosemary Crossley I was also yep. aware of as well. But some of those people, uh, like Ed Roberts, for example, mm. in the States, extraordinary man. Wasn't he amazing? Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, before I became involved, I didn't know any no. of that history either. And um, watching the the segments about the the Center for Independent Living at Berkeley, yeah. Um, which yeah, in the in the early nineteen seventies, was incredible. Just obviously seeing that that um, this was a requirement yeah. um, for for society and for yes. university life, and, 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 and that it was you know for. that greater uh, the great sequence to get the ADA enacted, where yeah. you know there's this sitting for weeks on end. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's um, and you know what I need to say is like call out to Rob Murphy, who was the editor, mm-hmm. uh, because you know you mentioned the structure and getting the structure. If we're going to talk about more like cinematic issues, getting the structure right for this film was incredibly hard work. Yeah. I think we worked out that we spent about twelve months in the edit suite over a number of years, and you know, for a big historical documentary, this is what you need to do. 
and we did lots of screenings with people uh, to get feedback. Yeah, that, that's what I was interested in hearing yeah. from. So you were collaborating closely with disability activists, I, I assume, across all three nations. Yeah, we were. But, you know, in terms of doing screenings, we, we did screenings to a wide variety of people. Not That would always include some people with disabilities, but it would also include a general audience. And yeah. it was basically like, do you understand what's going on? Because people mm. have different levels of understanding. Yeah. And one of the issues I think you find with this sort of stuff is that once you know the material really well you forget that what is clear to you is not clear to someone watching it. Yeah. So you'll notice on the way there's quite a bit of a use of cards yeah. and they're like little hand holds to make to guide people along. And what there is in terms of structure is like, I don't know how many stories, but a whole bunch of little stories that have to be made work yeah. together. And every little story needs its narrative arc from beginning, middle to end. And that was the complication. Yeah. No, it's, it's beautifully kind of structured. It, mm. it really tells that story very, very powerfully, I thought. So how have you gone about getting this film out? Like, as the producer, what are you doing to, to get people to see it? Yep, we think uh, it's very interesting. We think it's a film with what they call in marketing a long tail. Um, what, what does that a mean? A <laughs> long tail means it'll sell for a long time. Right, It'll yeah. live for a while. Yes. Not a two-minute wonder. Look, there's a big issue about this. Um, it... It launched at the Sydney Film Festival, which was great. We got this year? This year, 2017 Sydney Film Festival. It then went on to screen immediately after at the UN in New York in um, a big conference they were doing about disability issues. So that was great to start off with this. We've got knocked back from festivals that we were surprised from, sometimes festivals with a human rights right. uh, mm. angle. And we think... In a sense, this film is a little bit before its time, do I dare say, no, that I, people yeah. are still getting into this as a human rights issue. Yes. Because uh, of this whole structural change and acceptance of the yeah. social model. The yeah. social model. Um, is yeah. still kind of coming forward yeah. in, in and, people's conscience. And yeah. so at the moment it's being released throughout Australia um, with Demand.film on a cinema on demand uh, model. Uh, so uh, a couple of days ago, we had screenings in Canberra and Melbourne, and those Cinema On Demand uh, screenings are still going on. And basically how that works is that there is a website. Um, there's two ways you can do this. You can go to our website, defiantlives.com, and if you want, people can request a screening. Right. And then Demand Film sets up the cinema in the city, and even into the area of the city that you prefer. So, you know, if you're in Melbourne, you say, well, I'd like a screening on the north side, then they might go to the Nova. So they have strong relationships with, the, with most cinemas and they'll set up a screening and then people buy tickets to that screening. And once the ticket sales hit a certain threshold, then that screening goes ahead. So this is a really different model for yeah. exhibition to what we would traditionally... It, it's, a, it's a very different model. I think it's got pluses and minuses. Okay. Um, the first thing to say is that any documentary in the cinema market is really difficult to get people to go and see because, as you know, it's just so competitive. What is this? There's seven films released in yeah. cinemas every week. Mm -hmm. So getting noticed is always really hard. I think cinema on demand works very well when you can tap into a very specific market and you can drive that market via social media. So we've done lots of Facebook ads to get kind of a once a screening is set up. 
And we've worked closely with everyone who's volunteered to host a screening to help to get people to those screenings. Right. And we've been very lucky that we received a marketing grant from Film Victoria, yay Film Victoria, Terrific. to help with this. So it's very much um, audience-driven. So you need to find your passionate audience and then you need to support that audience to get to the cinema, basically, because there isn't, you know, newspaper advertising. We got some good reviews. David Stratton reviewed it in Australia. And we got more stars than The Beguiled. Yay! (laughs) Way to go. And does that work internationally as well? Yes. So so we're now releasing in UK and uh, USA. But as well as doing theatrical screenings, we're also doing more community-based screenings. Sure. And how this works, and this is quite specific, I think, to the film, is that huge issue, um, one of our core markets are people with a disability. Of and cinemas aren't accessible to people in wheelchairs. Huh. So cinemas have three or four seats for, you sure. know, spaces for people in wheelchairs. So that it makes it very difficult. Sure. And we've got to actually make sure that we don't upset our audience and about that as well. And also people with disability tend to be poorer and they tend not to go to the cinema because cinemas aren't accessible. So it's harder to drive that audience. So community-based screenings are going to be more community halls, those sorts of places, um, much Uh, I guess, lower profile, where there might be just 20 people who want to see it. Or it might be in a university setting, an academic setting, for instance, and getting people in those sorts of ways. And they'll continue on for quite a while, for months over the summer. And uh, we have also sold the film to ABC here. Excellent. So it will be screened as a feature-length version, which we're very happy about, ABC sometime next year probably on ABC too. Right. Um, so we're really thrilled about that. Fantastic. Congratulations. Because yeah, it's hard to get those sales. Yeah. And we have uh, a North American distributor who will be distributing it, um, doing broadcast sales and online streaming services from April next year. Their contract starts. Terrific. That's Women Make Movies. Very fine company. Great. Um, well, thanks for chatting about your film Defiant Lives with us. Yeah. Thank That's you. super interesting. Yeah. And hopefully our listeners get a chance to see yeah. it. Can I say one more thing? Go for it. We have screenings at Acme here in Melbourne. Excellent. On the 24th of February. And I think the following Saturday. And the 24th of February screening, um, that's Stella Young, who was a great activist. That's her birthday. Right. So right. it's to celebrate her birthday. Uh, so it's going to be a lot of fun. So there's going to be at least two screenings at Acme. So that will be on their calendar soon. So keep your eyes out for that one. And so internationally, people want to chase it down. They can go to defiantlives.com. Go to defiantlives.com. Fantastic. Thank you. Here at Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe highlighting films from the past and the present to bring exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition, so we've now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the costs of keeping Senses of Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. And if you're to subscribe at the higher level... You get all of the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast so you don't have to be interrupted by me every single month. Plus, 
you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Senses of Cinema. That means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Senses, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work they all do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Senses of Cinema, visit sensesofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link, and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring the journal to you throughout your film year. All right, it is the December episode, which means that we've come to the end of 2017. And so for our final discussion of the year, we thought we might just look back and discuss those people that we've lost and maybe those that we discovered over the last year. So each of us have decided to eulogise the career of one film legend and to celebrate the emergence of one new face that we're really keen to see more of. So, Eloise, whose career are you going to celebrate now that they've passed into the great projection screen in the sky? (laughs) Well, I uh, am very sad this year about the number of grand French actresses who have passed away, um, including Emmanuel Riva right back to January. It's quite, you know, I was thinking, you know, that that was years ago, but it was only January and now we're in December. Anyway, I just wanted to spend some time talking about um, Danielle Dario, who died in October at the age of 100. Um, and I realised that when I was doing some reading about this that she uh, apparently died from after complications resulting from a fall. Oh, really? Now, I know she was 100, which is like a big innings, but, but for her to, to have fallen and that, that is, is kind of what's, what yeah. took, took her in the end is, is pretty sad. I remember Leonard Cohen, I think, also died yes. from complications from a fall. Um, so, you know, that's just kind of unfortunate because it's like there, there could have been a little bit more time. Yeah. Um, but in any case, she was obviously born in 1917 in Bordeaux and just has, um, is, is so famous and so important, not only to French cinema, but also to, um, Hollywood cinema. She was in quite a few films, I think in the thirties and forties in Hollywood when, um, producers tried to bring her out and make her a star in America, but she just was having none of it. Um, so she went back to France, but she, um, in terms of her presence and her on screen, she has such poise, um, and sadness in her eyes, but also she's really firm and kind of really, um, she has a good sense of humor that you can just see coming through even when she's playing um someone who is quite serious um and maybe a little bit um severe um and that's what I really love about her she's like she's a terrific um romantic actor and also melodramatic actor but also she's this great musical star she did all of her own singing throughout her career and in some Jacques Demy films, I think a lot of other people in Jacques Demy films were dubbed, but not her. Um, she sang. And so I think even when she's not in a musical, she still has this really beautiful lyrical kind of presence. Um, and I really love, love it. I watched last night, because I'd never seen one of her Hollywood films, um, I watched this film called The Rage of Paris, directed by Henry Costa in 1938. It was a Universal Pictures film. Um, and she plays this... Uh, it's a, it's a, like one of those typical, you know, 1930s kind of um, class relations where she just happens to, um, she pretends to be of an upper class and then she just happens to marry um, 
Douglas Fairbanks Jr., who is a millionaire. Um, anyway, it was, should do. yeah, it's really beautiful. But there's this one scene where she like just, um, you know, through luck, she gets to go and um, live in a, a really uh, big, expensive suite. And she wakes up one morning and she says, I want melon and I want eggs and bacon and coffee and champagne for breakfast. And she does it. She's just like rolling all over the mattress <laughs> and then she falls off the bed. It's just something really terrific about it and spontaneous about her yeah. on screen. Um, it's such a like a huge career, like, huge yeah. career. I mean, she she was in Eight Women, wasn't she? Yes, yes. Uh, yes. With Francois, uh, Francois, Francois yeah. So still working up into the um, late eighties, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, yeah, or even nineties. Yeah. I think she w- was working in the late, um, you know, first decade of the two thousands. Yeah. But she, her first film was at the age of thirteen or fourteen wow. or something, and then she came to Hollywood in um, when she was nineteen. Uh, and then move back and forth. And, of course, she's in, like, a number of Max Ophel's most famous yeah, films. Madame Dirk. Madame Dirk yeah. and yeah. Laurent, um, yeah. which is just, you know, stunning. Yeah. So it's such an important career um, and so important to, to film memory. Yeah. So it has not been a great year for French actresses, no, has it, Liz? No. Well, I will continue on uh, <laughs> and mourn the death of Jean Moreau. And it was interesting, I'd forgotten until you mentioned it, uh, that Daniel Dario was in The Young Girl of Rochefort, which is a film I just adore, Mm. um, directed by Jacques Demy. And one of my favourite Jean Moreau performances is uh, Baie des Anges, but also by Jacques Demy. And what I have always loved about Jean Moreau is that even when she was at her youngest, um, she never looked young. She always had this wonderful, <laughs> she shaded <really> persona. <laughs> she was never a cute little sex no, kitten. always wise. She like was She was always, always this wise yeah. no, her, older woman yeah. with this... Mouth kind, was kind of downturned, yeah. Yeah. like she'd had enough already. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You could just like the cigarettes and the whiskey. You, you just yeah. know that's all there. Yeah. So, And also I think of her in the wonderful film Eva by mm. uh, yeah. Joseph Losey, which is yeah. being remade now. I really? Just, yeah. Oh. Um, I can't remember who by. So um, I think about Jean Moreau, and I did meet Jean Moreau once. Now, now you have to tell us this, because, because clearly you and Jean Moreau are really close personal well, friends. Well, we mates. Yeah. Um, it was at the Venice <laughs> Film Festival in 1992, and I was standing in a queue to see a film, and Jean was just standing next to me, queuing like any other mortal. Um <laughs> And, and so, what did you say? Well, I clumsily introduced myself in French. Bonjour, Madame Moreau. And she kind of looked at me and said, Ah, so, hello? So, you were British? I said, No, no, I'm Australian. And she said, oh, I have been there. It's a very beautiful country. So that was our conversation. (laughs) But it was a bit like meeting the Queen. Yes. And, of course, she hadn't long. She'd come to Australia to do the Wim Fenders film until Mm. the end of the world. Oh, right, of course. So, um, and that was, I think, 91, so it wasn't that long before. So that was my brief run-in. But even though she was a goddess, she was just standing in a line like everyone else. Well, to all our international listeners, if you want to come to Australia, we can tell you that Jean Moreau said it was beautiful. Yeah, exactly. There's a recommendation. Danielle, dare you ever come here? Not to my knowledge, but she could have. She had a hundred years in which to do so. Yeah. Well, so so if she didn't, you're saying she was kind of a bit lazy. (laughs) (laughs) You had a hundred years and you couldn't get on a plane. Yeah. Because the person I want to talk about also came to Australia and came out about 10 years ago. uh, And I want to talk about uh, George Romero, uh, who is not French, uh, is not 
female, um, but did come out here, I think, for the Melbourne International Film Festival uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, and there was a bit of a retrospective of his cinema back then. I remember going to see him speak. Um, and what a charming, kind, like really lovely grandfatherly kind of man that he was. You know, and because a lot of his cinema is loved by kind of very, like loved really intensely by people that they become a little bit obsessive about him. That meant that he was fielding, you know, some fairly inane questions from the <laughs> from the audience. And yet, like a kinder, more decent man who didn't get kind of frustrated or a little bit fed up with a ridiculous question or a question that wasn't a question. Um, he, he responded so kindly to all of that, which sort of spoke to what a, a good dude he was yeah. just off the bat. But such an incredible career as well. And something that I think that we still experience and, and live with now. I mean, obviously, he's really well known for Night of the Living Dead, which came out in 1967. And that's such a, a, an incredible film. Um, you know, he casts Dwayne Jones in the lead. You know, it's basically unheard of to have even a, a, an African-American actor as your lead actor, let alone in a horror film. Uh, and, you know, the the way that Romero talked about it was just simply like he was the best actor. So he was the best actor. So we hire him. And, you know, the, the perfect synchronicity, well, you know, it's not exactly a kind of happy synchronicity, but the fact that we have Dwayne Jones in that film um, coinciding with the civil rights movement and the, the uh, assassination of Martin Luther King ultimately sort of created this, this way of making sense of that film as this incredible cultural and social commentary about the civil rights movement, about Vietnam, uh, the war that was going on during that time. And what I think Romero really did was take, you know, what we often consider as a fairly lowly genre, something that's a bit flippant and easy to sell, and and did what smart people do. He takes, you know, a kind of lowly genre and says, here's the template for really interesting um, cultural and social analysis. And so that his films increasingly just sort of dealt with using a, a framework like the zombie film to really make sense of what was going on in society at the time. So you can start working your way through, you know, his dead trilogy and start playing around with what he's actually saying about what's going on in culture, even though, you know, it is, you know, must eat brains and, you know, here come, here come the zombies to, to munch on your neck. Um, it's also worth recognising that he played around not just with zombies, that he did play with a wonderful rage virus in The Crazies, and I really love The Crazies. And a really beautiful film of his called Martin, which is about a, a, a boy man who believes that he's a vampire and, and how he um, runs around sort of sucking the blood of various victims. But we're never quite sure. <laughs> like, Yeah, it is. It's very touching. But it's, it's actually a really lovely film about you know, somebody who at least, at the very least, believes that they are a vampire. And I think the loss of him is a real loss for... Uh, for, you know, really solid genre filmmaking. Yeah, the way you're talking is that he's just a guy with a lot of heart. Yeah. And that, for that to go missing, for, yeah. or not go missing, I don't know, but for that to, like, um, be lost from, from the film community is, yeah. is quite upsetting. And if we lost a couple of lovely yeah. French actresses, you know, we also lost Toby Hooper at the same time, so... That's yeah. true. Horror and, kind and, of took a bit of a knock. And Romero and Hooper, I guess, are both examples of genre director, horror genre director, who you can see through their work how you can use horror to talk about much larger exactly. ideas and yeah. notions in yeah. a very interesting way. Yeah. 
So, okay, so that was kind of miserable. That was a bit of the roll call of the dead. Can we do something like we're at the end of the year, something fun and up? That would be good. So who did we discover that we went, you're amazing, and I'm glad you're now in the film world? Well, my guy that I need to give a shout-out to as someone I recognised this year, he's not necessarily a newcomer, but this was the first time I've seen him in anything. So I wanted to talk about Jason Mitchell, who is – one of the stars of the ensemble, well, he's kind of the lead, I would say, but in the ensemble cast of Mudbound, DV's film that screened at Sundance earlier this year and is now um, on Netflix. It hasn't had a release in Australia, although it has had some cinema release in other countries, I, I believe. Um, but Jason Mitchell, he has been in other things. He was also in Detroit this year and I think in the King Kong movie, um, whatever it was called. Skull Island. Skull Island, yeah. So, and also in Straight Outta Compton. He had a few credits, but, but nothing significant that I had seen him in. Um, but it looks like there's more on his IMDb um, page to come. But he gives such an incredible performance in this film. He is, he plays this, this, um, man from kind of a disenfranchised family in uh, Mississippi um, in the 1940s. He's the eldest son of, of two people um, and then he goes to war. He goes to World War II and he comes back and it's kind of exploring a number of really heartbreaking things that he's going through, including um, PTSD, which of course they don't have a name for. But he has such an expressive face and I just want to the the way he kind of acts with his face and with his not only his eyes and his expression but with his lip his lip kind of quivers in this really heartbreaking way and it, it communicates so much about what he as a character is feeling and thinking and how there is something that is inexpressible inside him that still gets expressed via gesture um, and that's something that that is just stunning in the film um, and in his performance and so I'm really excited to see what he or how how he performs in in other roles fantastic liz um i'm going to give a shout out to a young actor called millicent simmons um young teenage girl who was one of the leads in wonderstruck the todd haynes film um and what i loved about her was this enormous expressivity of her face and as i said she's a hearing impaired actress playing a character with a hearing impairment and i think it's still very unusual to cast disability in that way. I think it's great that Haynes did that. But I think she, in terms of performances in that film, she was a very, very strong performance. And, you know, she was playing in the section which acts as a silent movie. So it was all totally reliant on her performance and that expressivity and subtlety of that performance. She has that that great face, like if you're going to set it. It's 1927, I think that sequence is. She's got, you know how some people just have the face of another time? That's right. (laughs) She could be a 1927 actor. So hopefully that's the beginning of a long career for her. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I'm not sure what she's doing next, but so a shout out to her. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had, I really loved the performances in that film, and she was, without question, a real standout. I was a little bit kind of mixed on my response to it, but I mean, she was certainly kind of one of those really luminous images in that film. Yeah, yeah, I didn't think because you know the nineteen twenty seven is, as you say, constructed as though it was a silent film, and I didn't think that anything else about those segments was particularly um, of the silent era. Um, mm. But her face was 
was very expressive and kind of took took the brunt of of all of that emotion. Yeah, yeah it, and that raises perhaps an interesting directorial question because I agree it wasn't in the style mm. of a, any sort of silent movies. Is whether you can actually just have that style in 2017 yeah, yeah. or whether it was so alienated general audience to work in that kind of pacing and cinematic that language. That he had to change it somehow. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that's one of the issues if you're going to do that. Yeah, um, yeah. well, all right, well, I'll take a crack at mine, shall I? I'm, I'm, I'm giving a shout-out to Osama Sami, who is uh, an Australian-Iraqi actor. Um, who is uh, the lead in a film called Ali's Wedding. Um, he is such an amazing, fascinating man, uh, came from Iraq uh, to Australia, and Ali's Wedding is also written by him, uh, and he plays the, the central role of Ali as well, uh, and it covers his courtship of his wife. And the film itself is a sort of, uh, dramatic comedy, probably the the closest uh, that international listeners might want to make is it's quite similar, I suppose, in some ways to The Big Sick, uh, Kamal Nanjiani's uh, film uh, that came out this year as well. Uh, and he's just, it was one of those experiences where you, I sat down and watched him and thought, where have you been? Like, it was just a, he's incredibly charismatic. The film itself is a mixture of uh, kind of fairly broad, silly comedy and some very um, touching, dramatic sequences. And he manages to move between those two states very, very simply. Um, and, the, you know, he just has this perfect comic timing that, that is quite incredible. Um, you know, the, the story is that the way that he sort of ultimately came to, you know, make that film was that he had done a, a series of kind of theatre and, and TV shows and stuff like that and was sitting down with the actress Claudia Carvin, and they were just sort of waiting between takes. I think it was a, a TV movie called Saved that's directed by Tony Ayres. And uh, they were having a chat, and then Osama just started to say, well, hey, guess how I met well, my wife, and here's how we fell in love. And he starts telling this story, and it's almost like this crowd starts to gather around him as he's telling this utterly insane story of him lying to his family about getting into medical school and trying to woo this girl who really was in medical school and this kind of the, the point where he starts playing the lead role in um, Saddam Hussein, the musical. Uh, and and all of this is accurate and true. And what came out of that kind of just kicking around telling a story was the people then said to him, you've got to write this down. So that when you engage with that film, it's got this incredible vibrancy coming from from his life so that he's got this really great uh, writing style in, in the same way that, you know, we talked about Greta Gerwig earlier this episode. Um, he's got the capacity to write in this really kind of um, insightful, hilarious way. He did it in collaboration with Andrew Knight, I believe. But as an actor, he's just so charismatic and so watchable that I sort of walked away from that film, enjoying the film, certainly, but really feeling like he was this astonishingly adept actor. Uh, so I'm very, very keen to see what he's going to do down the track. I know that the film has, you know, played in uh, several festivals and has had a really rapturous reception. I think it played at Chicago, uh, another one in Cairo. So internationally, that film is kind of making its way out there. So I would 
100% encourage people to chase that down and check out Osama Sami because I think he's incredible. Yeah, it's a really sweet comedy. And I, one of the things I really enjoyed about it is how you're so immersed within that community. Yeah. And the Anglo mainstream community just is is rarely there. Yeah. And that's not a problem. Yeah. It's never about, as we often see, the pressures of working against this other mainstream community. It's about the issues within this community. Yeah. And, and indeed, yeah. the, the kind of diversity within that Iraqi yes. community, which, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, his brother is as broadly Australian as yeah. you could imagine. You know, and Osama or Ali within that film is kind of somewhere shoved in the middle. It's it's a really sweet film and, and it's incredible. And competing religious leaders yeah. and their different views. Yeah. And, and always keeps that lightness. One of the things, little things I really loved about it was the actor who play, actress who plays the lead yeah. has a chipped tooth and she they does. didn't fix it. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a really terrific film and he's, he's quite amazing in it. So if you, you know, wish to... Uh, Give us your feedback on your own kind of profit-loss selections for this year. You can just whip over to our Facebook page at censusofcinema.com uh, and uh, leave a comment and let us know who you're, you're losing and who you're sad to have lost, but who you're glad to have discovered in 2017. So... Every month, Mark and I and our third chair will share with you a highlight from the current month, something be it a film, television or otherwise screen-related material that resonated powerfully with us and that we hope you can also find meaningful. So now it's time for something that lit up our screen worlds this December. Mark? Well, uh, last night I went and saw, for the second time, Call Me By Your Name, um, which is, I think it's already released uh, overseas and is coming uh, soon to be released in Australia. Um, I mean, it really is. It's, it's already getting the buzz about, you know, this is the film of the year, and I think it pretty much close, it is close to being that. Uh, it's directed by Luca Guadagnino, and he's a director who I've had a little bit of a a mixed response to some of the earlier films that he's done, but I really, really adored this film. I watched it again last night. Um, it is, I think, one of the great skills of that film is that the first half of that film sort of lays in a very sort of minor key all of the emotional beats that you're going to develop in in a much kind of stronger, louder way in the second half so that we have dance sequences, declarations of love, um, sexual relationships, frustration, anger, parents driving you crazy. Uh, and then in the second half, we hit those same beats, but this time it's like the music is louder, the emotion is bigger, the declarations are stronger and more heartfelt, and it becomes this sort of incredible, beautiful sort of symphonic um, display of emotion. And, you know, it has to be said, that final sequence, you know, Every single time. I've now seen the film twice. That final sequence is, without question, one of the greatest things that's come out of cinema in the last decade at least. Um, I was talking to a friend after we walked out, and he said to me, so, I, I thought that the end credits were, like, really short. Like, you know, suddenly there was only, like, three sort of frames of, of credits, and that was it. And I sort of had to point out to him, you know, while you were watching that final scene, there were credits all over that. But yeah. you don't end up looking at the credits because you're so captivated by the image that's on the screen. It is an extraordinary film. And if you haven't seen it, it's worth chasing down. I'm looking forward to it. Stunning, definitely. Mm. 
Liz? Yeah, I want to talk about a film called Lost Gully Road, which I saw at Monsterfest a couple of weeks ago. Okay, so, Monsterfest, which is our kind of horror, you know, kind of film festival in Melbourne. That's right. And, we're, you know, you were talking about George Marit. Romero and genre. So this is a genre piece, Lost Gully Road, directed by Donna McRae. Um, it's a very low-budget Australian feature. Um, I wouldn't call it so much as a horror story, as a ghost story. Um, it's set in the Dandenongs in an isolated cabin, so it's a bit of a cabin-in-the-woods story where the main lead character, a young woman, has to go and find, I guess, sanctuary for some reason without giving anything away in this isolated house. And it's graced by a fantastic lead performance by Adele Perovich. She was one of the main actors in The Code, the ABC right. series. Um, and she's in just about, I think, probably every scene. And her expressive, expressivity carries it along. And just as George Romero used horror to talk about bigger issues, this is very much a film that talks... Um, in a very contemporary way about violence towards women and the effects of this. Shot by Laszlo Baranye, who's shot a huge amount of stuff. The Dandenongs look stunning yet scary. Um, so I do recommend you keep an eye out for that next year when it's out. Lost Gully Road, I reckon it's a good one. Fantastic. Great. Uh, I've uh, been listening to a little bit recently a podcast, a relatively new podcast. It's only up to episode 10 um, called Talking Buster Keaton. It's an American podcast um, hosted. I can't remember the names of the hosts. I apologize to them. Um, but every episode they uh, review an one of the – one film from Buster Keaton or one of his projects um, and have a guest on. So a, a special um, expert in Buster Keaton or in silent film or just in film history or what have you. So um, Dana Stevens has been on a few and she's writing a book about Buster Keaton coming up next year, I think. So she's been a guest on a few episodes. Last night I listened to one with the guest uh, Janine Basinger, who is absolutely one of my favourite film writers, a professor in the United States. Um, Imogen Sarah Smith is on the next upcoming episode, which I haven't listened to yet, um, but she's a wonderful talker and writer as well. Um, and so if you love Buster Keaton and who doesn't, if you don't, then listen to it and, and watch some Buster Keaton films, I guess is what I can say. But it's just really nice to kind of hear experts talking about stuff that yeah. they love. And, and I'm, I'm listening to that as well, and it just drives you back to those films wow. to check them out. Yep. It's wonderful. Sounds great. Yeah. And if you don't love Buster Keaton, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Are you dead? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's that's it for uh, our December issue of the Senses uh, of Cinema podcast. Um, remember that you can come to our Facebook or our Twitter page to uh, chase us down, leave any comments, uh, and offer any kind of other takes on the things that we've talked about today. Uh, remember that we're also at Senses of Cinema leading into January's World Poll, which is a huge task uh, undertaken particularly by myself, uh, and that involves people uh, sending in to uh, Senses of Cinema the list of their favourite films of the year. 
which we will compile and publish in mid-January. Don't forget that if you wish to uh, participate in the World Poll, just go to our website at censusofcinema.com or chase us down on Facebook or Twitter, uh, and you will be able to find the details there. And because we've got the podcast up and running, we're offering you the chance to not just submit a written uh, poll for January, but also you can record perhaps just on your phone, just a really short, maybe 30-second uh, little voice clip where you can state your name, your location, your favourite film of the year and why, and we might be able to cut that into the, pro- uh, the podcast in January. So we will see you uh, in another month uh, when we're going to have our big bumper January World Poll issue, which is going to be very, very exciting, and we're just literally going to talk about movies for an entire hour, probably just like what have people loved and that's what we're going to do. It's going to be really good fun. And it's always a fascinating time where you see people from all around the world talking about the whole range of things that they have encountered in a year. So that's really something to to look forward to. So thanks to Eloise Ross and our wonderful, fantastic third chair for this month, Liz Burke. Um, also thanks to our technical producers, the wonderful Peter Mercado and the brilliant Troy Mori and to Swinburne University for the use of their recording studios here in beautiful, summery Hawthorne. Uh, I'm Mark Freeman, and thanks for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast, and we will speak with you again with our Big World Poll Edition next month. 